0: This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Notes on last week's Twitter hack and on the allure of original gangster and other celebrity usernames. Using marketing databases for intelligence collection, the U.S. government mulls a ban on TikTok, Johannes Ulrich on Google Cloud Storage becoming a more popular phishing platform, our own Rick Howard on security operations centers, and a preview of the latest episode of his CSO Perspectives podcast. And more reaction to alleged Russian and Chinese attempts to hack COVID-19 biomedical research. From the Cyberwire Studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your Cyberwire summary for Monday, July 20th, 2020. Last week's Twitter hack remains under investigation. Some personal data were taken during last week's Twitter hack, according to the Wall Street Journal. The hackers were able to change the passwords on 45 of the accounts they compromised, which of course opened the possibility that they may have been able to access users' information. Up to eight of the 130 accounts affected are known to have suffered loss of personal information. No one has so far fully and explicitly connected the hackers of those behind the Twitter hack with natural persons. The New York Times followed the incident from chatter on Discord and concluded that the hack was the work of three people, probably young, at least two of whom shared an interest in collecting interesting Twitter accounts. Two of them, one called Ever so anxious and the other, LOL, appear to have been involved in Bitcoin scams before. Both were also well known regulars on OGUsers.com, a site frequented by those interested in acquiring short, so called original gangster usernames. OG names are regarded as having special cachet because they're normally associated with early adopters of a new platform. The other sort of username that's interesting to what the Wall Street Journal calls a subculture is, of course, the celebrity username. But neither ever-so-anxious nor LOL was the original hacker. The apparent originator of the hack, one Kirk, contacted LOL with the message, You, bro, I work at Twitter. Don't show this to anyone. Seriously. What he shared was a demonstration of his ability to take control of coveted Twitter accounts, He enlisted LOL and ever-so-anxious as middlemen to sell hijacked accounts. Kirk is thought to have obtained access to a Twitter Slack channel where Mashable explains he found credentials posted. The hackers progressed to a celebrity Bitcoin scam. How he got that far is unclear. Twitter hasn't elaborated beyond saying Saturday, quote, "...the attackers successfully manipulated a small number of employees," and use their credentials to access Twitter's internal systems, including getting through our two-factor protections. End quote. So apologies are apparently due Plugwalk Joe, whom Krebs on Security identified as the moving intelligence behind last week's Twitter hack. His involvement was tangential. He was a customer. He acquired the Twitter account At6 from one of the hackers, ever so anxious, But that, the New York Times concluded, was the extent of his involvement. As we mentioned before, there's been no report of Kirk's being identified as a natural person. LOL said he eventually came to believe that Kirk wasn't in fact a Twitter employee on the circumstantial grounds that he seemed more eager to do the company harm than LOL thought a real employee would. Make of that what you will, since plenty of employees a minority to be sure, but a non-trivial minority, do seem as a matter of history to have been willing to do their company harm. But in truth, very little is known about Kirk. He was an unknown on the various chat sites he engaged. He came out of nowhere, and then he vanished back into the virtual beyond. Researchers at Mississippi State University have shown the relative ease with which devices can be geospatially tracked ...through common commercially available databases, the Wall Street Journal reports. The study is interesting because of the devices it chose to track... ...Russian cell phones in and around Moscow and a missile test site in northern Russia... ...where there had been some indications that an accident had occurred. The results indicate, the journal says, the value such open commercial... ...marketing tools, really, can have for intelligence collection... The U.S. government seems to be moving towards serious consideration of banning TikTok as a security risk. An op-ed in The Hill suggests that such a ban would be based more on the generally frosty bilateral relations between the U.S. and China than on specific cases of misconduct on the part of the social platform. But on the other hand, TikTok does collect a great deal of data on its users. The Washington Post collects expert opinions about Russian and Chinese hacking of COVID-19 vaccine research and finds they differ over how to respond and even whether the hacking represented legitimate intelligence collection or a clear violation of international norms. Norms or no norms, there is a significant amount of bipartisan animus directed toward recent incidents of biomedical research hacking. The BBC reports that the Russian ambassador to London says Russia didn't do it, So there you have it. Joining me once again is Rick Howard. He is the CyberWire's Chief Security Officer and Chief Analyst. Uh, Rick, you are kicking off a a new season of your CSO Perspectives show that is over on CyberWire Pro. And you're starting off this season with an exploration of socks.
1: Yeah, Security Operations Center. I built many of them, toured millions of them. And, <laughs> and you know, I thought that I knew the history of SOC evolution. And as I was digging into this, I discovered that I was completely wrong. I mean, huh. but, yeah, it turns out that operations centers, the idea of them that you might need them, they've been around since like 5000 uh, BC. Can you believe that? 5000 BC. Really? Yeah. And we started to see the basic edges of the secu- the modern-day security operations center you know, in the early 1900s as the telecommunications industry started managing these giant networks of telephones. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we saw the first real operations center to do it in the early 60s. So that's pretty exciting. But through the next 30, 40 years, we get this... Uh, evolutionary change from not only the telecoms, but from the intelligence community, uh, from the government, from the commercial sector, and all of these folks, all these groups are sort of taking hits at how do you build these things.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, I always I- think of the... Uh the, the communication center in the movie war games
1: hey, true that's all all every sock i've ever been in we were trying to build that operation center right. <laughs> to some extent okay right even right. if it's two guys and a dog next to the coffee pot okay <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, you know but i was as i was looking into this though i we've discovered that the evolution of socks have really stagnated like since the early 2000s they haven't really changed that much and hmm. Um, I was talking to Helen Patton, she's the uh, Ohio State University CISO, about this kind of lack of momentum and also about how she is managing the zero trust policies from the SOC. Uh, And she had this to say.
0: The other challenge about research, which people sort of forget about uh, in the private sector is depending on where you are in the research cycle, your confidentiality requirements change. So for example, in the beginning when you've just got an idea, you want everyone to know about your idea because you want to crowdsource ideas and you want to get best thinking and you want to attract people to your cause and so it's all public and it's great right up into the point where you've got a patent and then you don't want anyone to know and Mm -hmm. and, and now it's locked down tighter than a drum and then once you publish – now, we want it to be all open again because you need people to come in and, and validate that your research is good and all this kind of stuff, right? And we haven't built zero trust protocols or access and authorization protocols around a changing life cycle
1: requirement. So she's basically saying that our concept of zero trust is not really mature enough to handle dynamic access rights. And I, I, this is something I've never mm-hmm. even considered. You know, when I think about Zero Trust, I'm thinking, you know, we want to limit the marketing department from getting to the financial database, and, you know, that's good enough. Right. But but what Helen is talking about is she's got a group of individuals, researchers at her university, doing COVID-19 research that has varying degrees of uh, requirements for access rights, depending on where they are in the process. And the Zero Trust uh, platforms that we all use today just aren't strong enough or mature enough to handle that.
0: I mean is it fair to say that there's been sort of this push and pull this this tension between what's needed and what's what's uh, possible uh, throughout the history of socks themselves
1: Absolutely right then you know we've always wanted more in the socks and by the way I've never gotten it okay I, I think in my mind what I would really want in my own security operations center is Security operations, network operations, physical security, all in one spot with the authority to make decisions to counteract some bad thing that's happening. Um, nobody that I know of has a sock like that. And I really do think it's the way it should be.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, there's uh, much more where that came from. Do check out uh, Rick Howard's CSO Perspectives podcast. That is part of Cyberwire Pro. You can check it out over on our website, thecyberwire.com. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Johannes Ulrich. He is the Dean of Research at the Sands Technology Institute and also the host of the ISC Stormcast podcast. Johannes, it's always great to have you back. Um, You have been tracking uh, some stuff that's been going on within Google Cloud and uh, some
2: folks using it for phishing. What's going on here? Yeah, that's something that we have seen sort of pick up beginning of the year and uh, by now pretty much all phishing attempts that I'm receiving that sort of matter that make it past my spam filter and such, they uh, use Google Cloud Storage uh, to actually store the phishing page. Now, we have seen this in the past with some of the Microsoft Cloud and such, but I guess they have gotten better in preventing this and cleaning this up. Turns out with uh, Google's Storage API, uh, those pages are quite persistent, and it's a little bit limited what you can do. You can basically just have a static page there, but then they just add some JavaScript that will forward the data that the user submits to whatever actual sort of data collection website the attacker has set up. Hmm. So why Google? What's, what's causing them to choose this? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. Now, first of all, Google is ultimately it's of a trusted site. Uh, the URL, uh, the host name they're using is storage.googleapis.com. Like with all these cloud providers, there's a lot of necessary good stuff uh, on this hostname, so you can't really blacklist it. On the other hand, uh, I found that Google is quite slow in removing these phishing sites. Mm-hmm. And uh, that may also sort of contribute a little bit to Google becoming more popular and some of the other providers becoming less popular because, well, uh, now we the attacker has more time here to collect data because the, p- the page they have to sort of protect is the page the user gets to first. And that turns out to be here, this storage at googleapis.com. Uh, if their collection site gets taken down, they can just make a change to the JavaScript and the collection page. But users that received the email in the past that actually triggers them to go to the phishing site, they'll still end up on that uh, phishing page. So, this is sort of the part that attackers usually have to keep up the longest. And if they can keep that up for a week, uh, that's usually all they need uh, to collect all the credentials that they would get out of a particular uh, phishing run.
0: And does that initial page, does it, I mean, at first glance, does it seem benign? Is it, is it the sort of thing where you could understand how a, a surface uh, inspection by Google, for example, would, would not raise suspicions?
2: Well, actually it usually is just copy-pasted code from uh, the particular page that they're trying to impersonate. So mm. you know, uh, some simple signature-based matching or so may actually uh, capture a lot of these pages. And once the user is done with the page, they usually will redirect them uh, like to the user's domain, uh, kind of trying to fool the user into believing that uh, they just entered the wrong credentials and, of course, they may then try again. I see. So what are your recommendations here for folks to protect themselves? This is something where you probably have to rely on user education. I would still recommend report these pages to Google as much as possible. Like Google Chrome has sort of a little add-on that makes it really easy to report phishing sites. I hope that Google will eventually get better in cleaning up these pages as people report them. All
0: right. Well, Johannes Ulrich, thanks for joining us. Thank you.